it's really great to be uh, with you all this morning. Uh, I always forget to say hello to the people joining online. Hello, welcome, thank you for joining, and for those watching informational communities, um, thanks for tuning in, like us on Facebook, Instagram, MySpace, <laughs> Bebo, Trade Me, <laughs> Tinder, no, okay, no, what's Tinder? Uh, so in 2019, a, a craze uh, swept the Western world, and it might even be a craze that you uh, participated in yourself. People were doing this. They were getting their material possessions, they were looking at them, they were holding them, and they were asking themselves, does this spark joy? <laughs> the West through uh, Marie Kondo and other f forms of materialism were having a reckoning with stuff, with our material possessions. Social commentators described this as nothing short of a cultural moment. Now, I didn't participate in this cultural moment, uh, not because of a sense of moral superiority, uh, but because I didn't want to be left with only uh, theology books and bottles of whiskey in my house. <laughs> but there was a dark side to this, mo um, to this movement. Charities were spending millions of dollars getting rid of donated items that didn't spark joy for individuals. And landfills were overflowing with non-joy-giving possessions. Uh, clothing charities actually usually only keep around 20% of uh, their donated goods. So what happens to the rest of the clothes? Well, the head of the clothing charity, the Orr Foundation, explained that uh, they would have been carted off to an already overflowing landfill, burned, dumped in the Gulf of Guinea, or most likely they will be dumped in informal landfills where people live. Because one person's junk is another person's burning landfill in their backyard. Marie Kondo's uh, fans were further shocked when Kondo opened an online store where she was um, selling a surprising amount of, for lack of a better word, crap. <laughs> like this $20 stick, which immediately sold out. It is a nice stick, I'll give her that. Uh, or this $50 motivation mist. Newt needs to spray some of that on his uh, PhD, yeah. It's, it's, it's not nice. It's not nice, I'm sorry. <laughs> so naughty. Uh, this one's for Andy. It's a uh, $135 tuning fork and rose crystal. Not sure I get the connection between those two things. Or this uh, $150 golden ladle, so you can just slurp up your privilege, it's delicious. Um, and while ultimately I respect the hustle, and I do respect the hustle, uh, I can't help but feel that uh, while we have a collective desire to order our possessions, a collective sense of indignation that for too long we've been filling our lives with stuff we don't need to impress people we don't like, that the Conmarie view doesn't quite cut it. Research published in the Journal of Cultural Studies and Crit Critical Methodologies put it like this. For as much as the decluttering of our private spaces signals to the values of self-control and discipline, it also inadvertently intensifies a relationship to objects in which things that fail to spark joy become consigned to the garbage dumps and landfills that today swell with the abject accumulation of consumer society. The Conmary uh, view encourages us to see items that don't spark joy for individuals as disposables. And this would be a potentially uh, adequate view if people didn't 
replace their stuff with more and more stuff. But unfortunately, people have done that en masse. Over uh, lockdown during the pandemic, um, consumer um, buying increased dramatically as people uh, sat down online shopping for things that sparked joy for them during lockdown. Across the West, even though our family sizes are getting smaller and smaller, our houses are getting bigger and bigger. We not only want stuff, but we also want space for our stuff. The average American household has 300,000 items in it, and I imagine New Zealand isn't too far off this as well, minus the guns and Big Macs. One of the fastest growing industries in the world is the self-storage industry. It's predicted to go from a global $85 billion industry to a $116 billion industry in just the next five years. But none of this should surprise us, because we live in a consumer culture which, by design, is not just meant to get us to buy more, but is designed to do nothing less than to win our souls. Listen to this quote from retail analysis Victor Lebeau in 1955 when consumer culture began to flourish. He says this, Our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life, that we convert the, the buying and use of goods into rituals, that we seek our spiritual satisfaction, our ego satisfaction and consumption. We need things consumed, burned up, replaced, and discarded at an ever-accelerating rate. This, uh, the plan was to ritualize the buying of material possessions so that people find their spiritual satisfaction in the buying of stuff. And when this doesn't work, producers uh, use what's called planned obsolescence, where they intentionally create products to fail in order to enact a new purchase. Apple is the most famous example of this. They um, throttled the actual capacity of older models of phones uh, using software and then settled a lawsuit for $500 million. Other culprits include ink cartridges, which are programmed to shut off and stop working even before they run out of ink. Light bulbs, which, although many of the earliest light bulbs still work to this day, are now created with an unnecessarily short lifespan. Uh, textbooks, which publishes updates with minor updates in order to get students to purchase them, ag purchase them again. And just the other week, it came out that BMW wants you to pay eight, an $18 a month subscription to use the heated seats in the car you have already purchased. Welcome to microtransaction hell. The dream right from the start of industrialization was to make consumption a religion. And it worked. This is the water that we swim in. This is the air that we breathe. And, and marketing and branding immerses us in this life more than we realize. Again, early on in uh, consumer culture, in 1928, economist Edward Bernays says this, Bernays says this Mass production is, is profitable only if its rhythm can be maintained. And he argued that business cannot afford to wait until the public asks for its product. It must maintain constant touch through advertising and propaganda to assure itself the continuous demand which alone will make its costly plant profitable. A study conducted at the University of Otago attached cameras to children aged 10 to 13 over a number of days to see how many ad advertisements they were exposed to. And the research stated the following. Uh, children wore cameras from when they woke up until they went to sleep for four consecutive days, Thursday to Sunday, that captured images at an angle of 136 degrees for seven seconds for exposure to marketing. Children in this study were exposed to a mean of 554 brands per 10-hour day, nearly a brand a minute 
through multiple mediums. And unfortunately, much of this advertising wasn't age-appropriate. But it can even be a wee bit more insidious and weird than this too. According to a recent uh, study by Cornwall University's Food and Brands Lab, two-thirds of the characters on boxes for popular children's cereal brands look downwards. And the idea behind that is that the characters are effectively making eye contact with small children in the aisles of supermarkets to amplify loyalty to the brand, according to the researchers. We all like to stoically claim that marketing brands uh, don't affect me, uh, that we're immune to marketing, uh, but the symbolism of brands uh, has more of a hold on us than we would like to admit. A study at Duke University showed that by merely being exposed to the Apple logo, people performed more creatively. Fast food joints use uh, lots of red and yellow because they're being proven to impact your metabolism and your hunger. But ultimately, um, marketing brands and advertising are constantly tapping into our insecurities by presenting a hyper-real and uh, unattainable picture of humanity for you to pursue. And this all uh, probably impacts you more than you'd like to admit. And so with all this uh, super uplifting content uh, now festering in your minds, uh, I want to ask the question, uh, how following the Jesus way should impact the way that we interact with material possessions? Did, do Christians have a distinct way which we interact with the material world? And the tricky reality is this. God created us consumers. We, as humans, are reliant on the acquisition and consumption of material things. We need food, we need tools for living, we need shelter. Uh, and the, if the Genesis account is to be taken seriously, uh, we need beauty as well. This, of course, is different from being a consumerist, but Christians simply can't tap out of being consumers. The question isn't if we consume, but how we consume. And the early church had a radical approach to material possessions. Possessions were not used as a way of creating comfort or happiness for the self, but to bless those who were, who were without and were ordered to create a flourishing world. The church, right from the get-go, treated material possessions as something that sparks joy for um, not something that sparks joy for ourselves, but something that can be extensions of God's loving care towards others. This was uh, one of, if not the defining attribute of the early church. Uh, listen to this quote. This is from Aristides, Aristides the philosopher, writing to the emperor in uh, just the second century of church history. Um, and I find this really remarkable. Speaking about Christians, he says this, they love one another, and he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. When they see a stranger, they take him into their own homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. And if there's any among them that are poor and needy, and if they have no spare food, they fast two or three days in order to supply the needy their lack of food. Such, O king, is their manner of life. And verily, this is a new people and there is something divine in the midst of them. The early church would go without before they would let others go without. The early church ordered their possessions so that those who went without wouldn't. They structured their finances and possessions not primarily so they could create a comfortable life for themselves, but so they could bless others. They fasted for days just to give their food to those who had none. And um, those around them saw this, and they said, there's something divine happening in the midst of these people. This is a new people. This is a people like we've never seen before. 
The early church's attitude towards their possessions and money can be summed up in two words, contentment and generosity, both of which we find in chapter 6 of 1 Timothy. Contentment. Listen to the words of 1 Timothy 6, 6 to 12. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And I want to ask you a question, uh, and it's this. What would your life look like if you were content with everything you already have right now? If you weren't thinking about the next house, the next renovation, the next car, the next item of clothing, the next piece of furniture, the next phone, the next holiday or experience. This isn't to say that any of these things are bad or that God doesn't want us to enjoy these things. Quite the opposite, actually. But what would it look like for your life if you finally gave up the exhausting pursuit of possessing the next thing? The Jesus way is the very welcomed invitation to give up this exhausting pursuit of attaining your own salvation through the material world, to not live for the next thing, but for the main thing, to not be exhausting ourselves by building a kingdom of comfort for ourselves, but to be an outpouring of comfort to the other, to be a people who trust God. Because so often I find the dominant narrative in our lives is how do I get more to be more comfortable and more happy? I know this is often true for me. Every so often... um, when I scroll through the dumpster fire social media platform of Twitter, um, I'm zapped back into reality when amongst all the virtual screaming matches, I come across uh, the tweets of a man I follow. Uh, his name is Stuart Rogerson, and uh, he's a Catholic man, and he's, um, he's dying. And he posts tweets uh, with the jarring and dis- disarmingly casual hashtag dying update. His bio at the top of the page simply reads, happily married with three daughters and eight grandchildren, dying of esophageal cancer. And one of the biggest things I've noticed him talk about is his trust in Christ and contentment in Jesus as he dies. This is one of his recent updates that he posted the other week. As time passes, dying becomes just ordinary daily living. No drama, just peace, acceptance, and trusting in our Lord. Pray for you all every day. Following Jesus challenges our trust structures. Robert Mulholland speaks of trust structures as being our deep inner postures of our being that do not rely on God, but on self for our own well-being. Stuart Rogerson is losing his whole life, but somehow he is deeply well. His trust structures lie completely with Christ. Godliness with contentment is of great gain. We see in this Timothy passage the contrast of contentment with the trap of chasing after affluence. And Paul does describe this as being a trap. Paul here isn't condemning wealth outright, but reminding us that of the way that chasing after wealth has a way of capturing our hearts and our desires. That we are to have possessions, but we are not to let them have us. That we are to consume, but we are not to be consumerist. 
The passage from our reading in Ecclesiastes today reminds us of this trap. We heard, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? Generosity, 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Timothy uh, was a young pastor just like me, and Paul was telling him that it's actually his job to command the wealthy to not put their hope in wealth, but to command the church to be generous instead. And so my conviction when reading this scripture is that it's actually part of my job to warn people of the dangers of wealth and to command them to be generous. I'd rather tell blues jokes, but that's part of my, my job description, apparently. Hear me when I say that St. Augustine's is one of the most generous groups of people that I've ever come across. Many of you have shown me personally, and my, my whānau as well, extreme generosity. And so uh, I want to encourage us today, this morning, to keep living open-handed, to keep looking for those who might be lacking, to lean into the certain hope of Jesus and not the hope of affluence, that we might be a community that's actually known by the people of Auckland City, not just for the incredible worship or extremely good-looking preachers, <laughs> like St. Burroughs, um, <laughs> but that, would we, that we would be known by our inexplicably generous lifestyles, that people would look at us as they did with people in the early church and say, there is something divine happening in the midst of these people. This is a new kind of people. That we demonstrate to the people of the city that we're content in our creator, and out of the overflow of this, we give to those who are in need. That even in a time where the church is in the news for all the wrong reasons, and it seems like church leaders across the evangelical world are failing, that we are a new people that are content in Jesus and generous with what we have. I genuinely believe that God is calling his church into a season of unbridled, unrestricted generosity and the ruthless elimination of greed through contentedness. I wonder what that means for your life. I wonder what it means for uh, our church, and I especially wonder what it means uh, or what it could mean for our city. Let's pray together. God, we look to you and we trust you with our whole lives. We don't look for comfort and uh, the accumulation of things in this world to make us feel comfortable, but we look to you for our comfort. And we just ask this morning for your tangible presence uh, amongst us that we will gain a sense of meaning and significance and progress, not from money and possessions, but from you and your love for us and your call for us to love others in this world. Give us eyes to see those in our city who need more, who don't have enough, who aren't just looking for um, an, an upgrade but don't have their basic needs being met. Would we have eyes to see them 
would we be content in what we have and then offer, gener um, offer generously in the face of what we encounter? And God, may we enjoy what you have blessed us with. We pray ultimately uh, that your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Amen.